0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about sacrifice. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to visit our church. We think that listening to sermons online is a great way to help develop your spiritual life, but it definitely isn't a replacement for being a part of a church. And so again, I want to invite you to come visit ours. You can find just about all the information you need to make your visit comfortable by clicking on Sundays in the menu of this website. Or you can email us if you have any other questions. Our email address is us at creekside.me. That's us at creekside.me. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, for the last several weeks we've been talking about sacrifice, and um, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, there's a certain ambivalence that goes along with the idea of sacrifice. Um, uh, I I grew up Catholic, and uh, we sacrificed by uh, having fish on Friday instead of meat, and that, so that was like a, a sacrifice. But, you know, I, I liked fish sticks and tuna and all the stuff that we ate on Friday. It was kind of something that was a regular part of the rhythm of the week, you know. I, I didn't feel like it was a sacrifice. I remember one time I went over to my grandmother's house, though. It was a Friday. And she slipped a cog and made me a bologna sandwich. And I was halfway through the sandwich when she said, Oh, no. I said, What? It's Friday, and you're eating meat. And I thought, seriously, I was going to die. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I, I, I said, what am I supposed to do? Should I go throw it up? What am I? And she goes, you know, she finally calmed herself, and she said, you know, God understands. And I thought, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad. So I said, should I finish it? <laughs> she said, let me make you a tuna sandwich. So that's, that's how that worked. But honestly, when it, when it comes to the idea of sacrifice, we Christians struggle. Um, we struggle more than other faiths for which sacrifice is an integral expression of their devotion to God. And um, I think this is why. When, when it comes right down to it, we struggle to understand what it is. Is sacrifice something that is only sacrifice if it's disagreeable? If it's painful, if it, if it presents some kind of profound deprivation, we, uh, uh, this church uh, acknowledges Lent. And uh, last year at the Ash Wednesday service, Pastor Chad gave us the challenge to give up something meaningful or give up something that you really feel will move you along in your relationship with God. And so... I decided quietly, I didn't say this to anybody else, but I decided that I was going to give up my tendency to complain when things don't go the way I like. And it was one of my less successful Lenten (laughs) sacrifices, but it is what it is. I, I think of what Matt said last week, he used the illustration of the French soldier who gave his arm for his country, right? And I think that starts to get at the idea of what sacrifice is. Sacrifice isn't always something that we do begrudgingly. Sometimes we do sacrifice willingly. In fact, I would submit that sacrifice in the New Testament sense is something that we Christians do willingly. We actually enjoy it. I think of Albert Schweitzer. Schweitzer Uh, was uh, born in 1875 in Germany to an evangelical Lutheran pastor. His father was a pastor and taught him music when he was a young boy. And by all accounts, Albert was a prodigy. He was brilliant. He became a world-famous concert organist. Uh, He got his PhD in theology when he was 24 and shortly thereafter wrote the book titled A Quest for the Historical Jesus, which uh, became one of the most important books of its time. Schweitzer then went on to medical school and earned a medical degree and became a doctor and a surgeon. This was a man who could go anywhere he wanted to go. He could do anything he wanted. He was upwardly mobile. He was a rising star. He occupied leading positions in the University of Saint Thomas in the theological school there, and after he finished his medical degree, he decided to go to Equatorial Africa, French Equatorial Africa, and establish a hospital there to serve the needs of the village uh, villagers in that area. It was a remote part of the world. When he died, he spent the better part of his life there. When he died, he was buried by a river that runs next to the hospital, and the only thing that marks his grave is a cross that he himself made. He died in obscurity. Here's a man who could have gone anywhere, done anything. He could have been a world leader, and he gave his life to serve the people in French, Equatorial Africa. And you say... I bet if we, uh, we if when we see him in heaven and we ask him, was it worth it? Did you, did you enjoy your life? Do you think you had a fulfilling life? Do you have any regrets for doing what you did instead of pursuing a life of fame and fortune and influence? And I'll bet you my bottom dollar that Schweitzer would say it was worth every bit. That's what I call total sacrifice and that's the title of the sermon total sacrifice what is total sacrifice let me give you a definition from a Christian standpoint okay I mean there are a lot of people that can sacrifice in different ways but from a theological point of view from a Christ-centered point of view total surrender is willingly and joyfully giving up everything else that matters to us in exchange for the one thing That matters most. Notice the willingly and joyfully we give up everything else that matters for the one thing that matters most. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we. All died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So, we're talking today about living sacrifices. We're going to go to Romans 12. We've been talking all around it through this whole series on sacrifice, but today, we're going to get right into that passage and, and get under the hood and see what really makes that passage work. But I have to tell you this. If you're a living sacrifice today, it's only because you already died. So, um, you know, when we say, well, you know, it's, it's really interesting because living sacrifices are, I mean, a sacrifice is a sacrifice only because it dies. Well, guess what? We die too. We don't live until we die. We don't truly live until we die with Christ, until we die to the old way of life. And when that comes online, everything changes. Because the new life, the living sacrifice life that comes after death, that's real life. And it's a life of total sacrifice, willingly and joyfully giving up everything that matters for the one thing that matters most. And as we look at Romans 12, we see the genius. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. If, if Roman is the Romans is the most important theological book in the Bible, which I believe it is, it's not the only important book, but it is of supreme importance because of the way Paul unpacks the implications of the gospel for the Christian life. If if Romans is the most important book theologically, then Romans 12, 1 through 8 is the most important part of that book. What we see in Romans 12, 1 through 8 is this. God's mercy inspires total surrender. God's mercy inspires total surrender. If you get anything out of this sermon, I want you to remember that five-word sentence. God's mercy inspires total surrender. Oh, this is is where it gets fun. How does it do that? How does God's mercy inspire total surrender? Well, the first way we see in verses 1 and 2. God's mercy inspires total surrender by renovating our perception of reality it turns us upside down. Let's, let's read this. Uh, Romans 12, it should be up on the screen there. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The first thing we need to understand is the placement of this text. Paul has spent 11 chapters developing, in the most extraordinary of ways, a picture of God's mercy. In Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is God's power to save. Ah, Later on, in chapter 2, he says, there's no bragging rights here. We're, We're all messed up. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you come from a religious background or not, the ground is level. We all need God's grace. In Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we access this grace? It's not by our own efforts. It's not by our own godliness. It's by faith. And from chapter 4 on, Paul deals develops this beautiful idea of faith with Abraham as the forefather of the faithful. And uh, in chapter 5, he concludes by saying, we don't live by a cheap grace. And in chapter 6, he talks about the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In chapter 7, he talks about the inability that we have to, to overcome the flesh through fleshly means. When we try to do that, we're going to end up foiled every time. And then eight, one is the greatest most hopeful verse in all the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he develops the idea that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Even if the majority of the Jews don't accept him, God always works with a remnant, and he always sets us up to receive his grace. In fact, he's shut up all people under disobedience that through Christ he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth, of the, the riches of the wisdom of God. Who can be his counselor? His ways are noble. Paul, Paul ends chapter 11 with this great doxological expression of praise as God pours out his mercy on all of us. And then, now, he comes to chapter 12, our text. And he turns everything around and he points at us and he uses the strongest imperative in his language he, he it, it literally means i call you to my side therefore i urge you brothers and sisters that 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 verb there means he's grabbing them by the collar and he's saying now pay attention because this is where the rubber meets the road in view of god's mercy what what view The view that they have from looking at 11 chapters of the most beautiful explication of God's mercy in the Bible. In view of all that, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. What is this living sacrifice? It is what the NIV says, true and proper worship. That, I'm sorry, is a lame translation of the text. In fact, there is no translation that gets this right. The reason why is because there's no simple translation that can convey what Paul has just done here. He has used two words. One comes from Greek philosophy, and it's the word from which we get our word logic. The other comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it describes the daily activities of the priests what they did on a daily basis Logikain latreian is 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 what it is in the greek i hate to throw around greek i mean but i've got to set this up right so this is the way to do it right so paul paul is is, is saying in essence that we are to take our daily lives and appropriate it to the glory of god now think about what the priests did they had a rhythm. They got up. They did the morning sacrifice. They cleaned up. They dealt with people. They, they trimmed the lamps every week. They put out n- new showbread every week. They had their, weekly, their daily and weekly rhythms. And then they get the, now imagine though, imagine. So a morning sacrifice. No big deal, right? Well, have you ever butchered an animal? I mean, a, a good-sized animal? I mean, that's a lot of work. You know, any butchers here? Anyone that's ever butchered? Hey, all right, very good. That's a lot of work, isn't it? A lot of work. A lot of mess, right? And imagine, so you get this thing out there, you finally get it all offered up, and and, uh, you're cleaning up, and here comes comes Jacob. down the road, or uh, I, I came up with that name. I mean, a Hebrew name, right? So this guy, Joe, or whatever, he comes down and you see him bringing his lamb. He wants to do a free will offering. Man, I just cleaned this thing up. So you know, it, it's uh, the, they were they were they were also civic leaders. They had to deal with people's problems. They they were busy, and it was all latreia. That's the word in the Septuagint. Logi k'in latren He's saying, I want you to consciously appropriate your daily life to the glory of God. Now, Eugene Peterson, uh, in his translation, The Message, is the only one that actually renders this in a way that gets close to what Paul was talking about he says so here's what I want you to do God helping you take your everyday ordinary life your sleeping eating going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering it took a paraphrase to get this right Peterson captures the idea of Logi Cain Latreian better than anybody I've seen. Better than the commentaries. What does that mean for us? Think about it. How I drive my car. Something I do every day. I'm not saying I got this down. All right? Just true confessions here. But, but you know, when you're, you're going down the road... And you're kind of in a hurry, and it's Murphy's Law. You catch every light when you're cutting it thin already, and then somebody comes up, and they want to move over into your lane. What do you do? Well, if you're present to God's presence in that moment, you might just do something differently than you would ordinarily do, which is to accelerate and close the gap and just... (laughs) No, you'd back away and you'd say, Lord Jesus, this I do to your glory. I'm treating this person the way you would treat anybody for whom you died. See, there's something that happened there. See, I, I consciously seized that moment for the glory of God. Do You see that? That's a discipline. Imagine engaging in hundreds of little decisions like that every day going through your life and seizing every moment that you become conscious of God's presence and find a way to redeem that for his glory in that moment. You're having a conversation with somebody and you you know you got this really good little tidbit of gossip that you could unload, you know, and it'd be kind of fun. You both would have a really enjoyable time talking about this person in a negative way. But something occurs to you in that moment. This is not an appropriate thing to be talking about. I'm not going to say this. Lord Jesus, I keep silent to your glory. See? So imagine getting out and and seizing life in a very different way. God's mercy calls us to live into our differentness as God's people. Uh, Verse 2. There's something that happens when we engage in this regular exercise, this mental discipline of appropriating everything to the glory of God. What happens is we start becoming more attuned to God's will in real time. And there's this interesting tension here between conform and transform. That's what's in this text here con form, just as the English word would suggest, is to be formed with. The word con from Latin means with, right? So we're formed with the world. And Paul doesn't just use any old word for world here. He uses the word for the present age. The fads, the fashion, Madison Avenue, the the common understandings of what's really important, really beautiful, really fashionable, right? These are the things that exert the most influence on us. It is, in a word, culture. Culture influences, influences us to think in certain ways. And if we're not aware, if we're not conscious, if we're not attending to these influences, they're going to form us. Paul uses the word for type. Like on a typewriter, it's a set pattern. It's like a mold. Like you put plastic into a mold. I, sh- I could have used like cupcakes into a mold, I guess. But anyway, I think plastic. Why? I don't know. But, but th- that molding, what does a mold do? It creates something in its own image. That's what conform is. Paul says, don't be conformed. Be transformed. Be formed by something else. In fact, the word he uses is the word metamorphosis. He wants us to be morphed by the renewing of our mind. See, that's what happens when we engage in this daily, moment by moment, appropriation of everything to the glory of God. It rewires our mind. We think differently. We're morphed into something else because of this daily discipline of appropriating everything to the glory of God. 20th century American Quaker educator Thomas Kelly wrote a book back uh, almost 100 years ago now uh, called, um, uh, let's see, uh, the, um, A Testament of Devotion. And in that book, uh, Kelly writes... This is so good. I just want you to get ready for it, okay? Because this, this, he gets it. He gets what it is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to the way he describes this process. There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer, adoration, song and worship and gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. The secular world of today values and cultivates only the first level, assured that there is where the real business of mankind is done and scorns or smiles in tolerant amusement at the cultivation of the second level, a luxury enterprise, a vestige of superstition, an occupation for special temperaments. But in a deeply religious culture, men and women know that the deep level of prayer and of divine attendance is the most important thing in the world. It is at this deep level that the real business of life is determined. Isn't that good? man if we could get this we'd we'd have this christian life stuff nailed down really seriously this is total sacrifice see god gets every part of us god's mercy inspires total sacrifice by renovating our perception of reality but that's not the only way we see in our text god's mercy inspires total sacrifice by obliterating our sense of independence. Ooh, now that's getting personal, but really, look at verses uh, verse 3. We'll read that right now. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. All right, we've got to get some things straight here. This, by the way, is another abysmal translation. There's uh, uh, The New American Standard Version probably gets closer to any of them. Um, but Paul isn't talking about the faith that's been distributed. Uh, it, people get troubled here because he uses literally the phrase measure of faith. And um, so people are wondering, is he talking about um, giving some people more and some people less? So God gives uh, me a bigger measure or a smaller measure? And, and I guess, no. But he does use the word metras. It's the word uh, for metric. We get that, our, our uh, English word for that. He's literally talking about a measure of some kind. And, and I want you to think with me about a good image that would help us get our minds wrapped around this. Think of a yardstick, right? A yardstick. How, how long is a yardstick? Three feet. Okay, so we've got three measures, measure the feet, right? How many, in, how many uh, inches in a foot? 12, right? So this isn't really a math lesson, but I'm... I'm, Okay, so we got 36 inches. So we got 36 of those measures, right? What would happen if we took one of those measures away? We'd have an incomplete yardstick, right? It wouldn't be the full measure anymore. It'd be something less. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying that every single one of us occupies a place on the yardstick. We each have a special place. And if our measure is taken away, it's less than a full measure. It's less than what it should be. You say, really? Is that what Paul's saying? Yeah, I'll prove it. I'll prove it. But first, let me just say that Paul uses different metaphors. And he likes to mix his metaphors, which according to, to good English uh, style is not a very good thing to do, but he spoke Greek, he didn't speak English, and he liked mixing metaphors, and I like it too, because theologically it works a little better. But elsewhere in the Bible we see a similar idea, First Peter 2.5, we're seen as living stones that make up this temple, think of it, you and I each a stone, uh, uh, like a brick that fits into a wall, and we're all fitted together, right? Paul uses the same kind of analogy in Ephesians 4.16. The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds up itself in love as each part does its work. So we all, and and that's what he goes on and says here. God's mercy ushers us into a new way of existing. Look at uh, verses 4 and 5. Just as each of us has one body... With many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. See, all Paul did was change metaphors. He goes from measure to body. So these different measures that fit together and make a whole, we're now body parts, and we fit together and we make a whole body. Uh, Paul is saying that we are indispensably part of a larger whole. And how do we think more highly than we ought to think? By assuming that I don't need you. When I get to a place where I think that I am ontologically separate from you, when I think that I I can just do my own thing and not really have to worry about being part... you know, the the notion in the United States, that was popularized by many revivalists, that would say, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and then go to the church of your choice. That so warps our theology because it makes us think, first and foremost, we're individuals and, and we exist prior to any instance of community. And whatever community we become a part of, we do it on our terms and for our personal benefit. That, my friends, is not the New Testament ontology. We do not exist prior or separate; we exist in interdependently. So we get that down. If we start seeing that, hold, see to think of it any other way is to be conformed, not transformed. So, but it's it's the air we breathe. I uh, I I was um, having a, a conversation with a New Testament scholar, real well-known guy. Uh, who uh, was, um, I was trying to get him to come and speak at one of our ministry and contemporary culture events when I was at George Fox, and I, I called him and talking to him on the phone, and he was kind of gruff. He goes, I'm 75 years old, and I'm working on what will probably be my last book. And I'm not going to be interrupted by anything until I get this thing done. I said, uh, wow. Wow. I was trying to redeem the conversation. I said, wow, it sounds like you've got good, healthy boundaries. (laughs) He said this. Then he went on and he said, yeah, I do. Without good boundaries, you're reduced to a quivering mass of availability. (laughs) I said, I'm going to steal that. (laughs) A quivering mass of availability. Who wants to be that, you know? Uh, but, But think about it. This, this resonates so well with us because we live in a culture that wants to protect our personal boundaries. You stay here, you know, don't get in here, don't get too close. We, we uh, you know, individual rights, civil rights, human rights, doing our own things, setting our own agenda. You know, these are the kinds of things that culture tells us are almost virtuous. And to the extent that we internalize that without understanding our unique existence in Christ is to be conformed, not transformed. It's to fall short of total surrender. God's mercy inspires total surrender by renovating our perception of reality and obliterating our sense of independence in one final way. God's mercy inspires total sacrifice by stirring our willingness to risk. Ah, See, God's mercy encourages us to discern our unique gifting for ministry. That's what we see in verse 6, the first part of verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. See that measure? Every measure, the measure you have, the measure I have? every measure comes with a gift it's not a question of if it's just a question of what and you say i don't know i don't know what my gift is i i, I really don't you know i well there there's a there there may be a, a reason why uh, three reasons is what i list here one reason why we don't get in touch with our gift is because of a misdirected humility. Oh, you know, I look at Pastor Chad and I see how gifted he is. He can get up and just preach. And uh, what do I? What do I have? I don't have anything. Or, or maybe another reason is gift envy, right? That kind of goes on the heels of that. But I remember one time Diane and I were at um, my doctoral mentor's house, and it was a really weird thing. It was all very tense and prim and proper and he he was serving us a simple meal which meant tablecloth and china and all the different uh, parts of the meal and so we were all rather uptight there were several students doctoral students there and their spouses and and then nancy his wife pulls out this weird old like a lute or something it was a musical instrument that i mean nobody ever knows and she starts playing it with some proficiency like and diane says you know God really ripped me off. I don't have any of these things. I mean, you look at this. You're playing this thing like, and it completely broke the ice. I mean, everybody. It was like after that, everybody was relaxed. You know, it's gift envy. You know, that might. We look at other people's gifts and we say, "Man, my gift is so worthless compared to that. Why even try?" You know. Um, Another reason why we don't get in touch with our gifts is fear. We're afraid. I remember the first time I was a new believer and the, the guy who was mentoring me in my life, he said, you know, I believe that you have the, the gifts and abilities to preach. I think you, I think you have the ability to, to teach and preach. In fact, I think you, you could actually do that really well. I laughed at him. I said, what are you smoking, man? You've got to be kidding. Well, what I was really doing was deflecting it because the, the prospect of me getting up and having to spend time talking in front of people was terrifying. Fear. It's another reason why we shy away from what we think we might be good at. But God's mercy motivates us to just do it. Look at, look at uh, verses, uh, the last part of 6 through 8 there. Paul says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Do it. Just do it. See, we, we get engaged in this, and we start doing this as a way of exercising our uniqueness in Christ. And notice the qualitative expression. Do it joyfully. If you're going to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Don't be a martyr. You know, don't, don't put your half, if you're going to lead, do it diligently, Paul said. Don't do it halfway. Put all of your weight into it. Because if we're engaged in these things begrudgingly or half-heartedly, it shows that somewhere along the way, we still haven't gotten this idea of total sacrifice. Sacrifice is willingly and joyfully giving up everything else that matters in exchange for what matters most. And the the beauty and genius is it's not something we conjure up. It's not something we do in our own effort. It's something that happens to us when God's grace gets inside of us and the Holy Spirit fills us. It's not something I can muster up on my own. I will never engage in total sacrifice if it's up to me. So the question as we wrap up the sermon is this. has God's mercy inspired total sacrifice in me? If you don't think it has, I don't want you to beat yourself up and say, oh, yeah, I'm just a scumbucket. I just, I don't know. Don't try to engage in a whole new set of resolutions in other words, don't try, don't presume that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get this without God's help. Because what we're talking about in total sacrifice is actually a byproduct. It's a byproduct of a life that is rightly oriented with God. So what, what, what you need to do is go back to the well. Go back to God. Just turn back to him. The Bible says, if we draw near to God, God draws near to us. So that's the first step. Draw near. And you don't have to go off in the mountains or, or, or off to the ocean to do this. You can do it right in your car. In fact, your, your car is actually a pretty good vehicle for worship if you use it that way. If you're like me anyway, I tend to be an uptight driver, so I I, I have to be conscious about sanctifying those times in the car, right? But but there are other in every conversation, in every way. So just tune in to God. And then listen. Be attentive. So if we attend, we're going to hear something. And when we hear it, the last thing is to obey respond in positive ways when when the spirit is giving you that little inkling that maybe I should let this guy in front of me in the lane next to me in or maybe I shouldn't say what I was about to say or maybe maybe I've done something and I realize after the fact you know I really messed up you apologize right but in all things this is this isn't rocket science okay it's just a matter of getting rightly oriented with God and then letting God's mercy bring us to total surrender. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that? Just say amen if you're ready for that. All right, all right. We've got our work cut out for us, but by God's grace, we can do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that you give us the ability to do things that we could never do on our own. And the last thing we would ever do on our own is total sacrifice. But Lord, as you fill us and direct us, we pray that we would do so joyfully and willingly and that you, by your Spirit, would give us the ability to give up everything that matters for the one thing that matters most. We pray these things in Jesus' name.